This is Isabel Siderny, and this is Frame by Frame, a podcast introduction to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today, talking about their work on films that continue to make New York an essential center of the global film industry. In 1981, sound editor Maurice Schell, picture editor Peter Frank, and re-recording mixer Lee Dichter came together in making the film The Verdict. Directed by Sidney Lumet, the film was nominated for five Oscars. I think that he brought the post-war documentary cinema verite idea to dramatic film. Sidney shot everywhere, and I think that, that paved the way for a lot of people to shoot in the city and use the energy of the city as part of the movie. It was quintessentially New York. Frame by Frame is brought to you in partnership with Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance, because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org, and we can be found on Twitter at at PostNY. Our host for today's session is Soundtrack. I asked Maurice, Peter, and Lee to talk about the evolution of New York filmmaking as they were coming up, and what made The Verdict such a quintessentially New York collaboration. New York had never had, pre-Second World War, really had, didn't have a feature production thing until starting in the late 50s, into the 60s, it began to develop. That's Peter Frank, who started as a sound editor on films such as Reds and Melvin and Howard. He continued as a picture editor working on Sidney Lumet's The Verdict and Daniel, and has since edited for television and other films such as Dirty Dancing and Cadillac Records. A lot of it was just commercials and industrials, but then the documentaries started that to was, develop. That was big. When I started... Yeah. Documentaries were very big, you know, Channel 13 at the time. And all the both men and women editors were, you know, it was a different breed. They were, they were politically conscious, socially conscious. That's right. And, and uh, you know, even being around them, like listening to them speak or the way they worked. That's Maurice Schell, a sound editor for both documentary and fictional feature films with over 50 years in the industry. His credits include Sidney Lumet's Serpico, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, Jonathan Demme's Melvin and Howard, and Brian De Palma's Scarface, in addition to working with directors such as Ron Howard, Spike Lee, Ulu Grossbard, Lassa Hallstrom, and David Mamet. You know, Zena Voidow. Yes, Zena. Eisenstein's sister-in-law. Yeah, sister-in-law. She, yeah, she was an editor. She was an editor. But she had done documentaries before. Yeah. Uh, but but there one. were many like that with, with long histories. Uh, Nick's Nick's father. father. I was about to say yeah. that. Sidney Myers was, Sydney. A, was an editor and a, and a director. And he directed yes. uh, several uh, documentaries, it, one of them called The Quiet, Quiet, Quiet one, one. The Quiet One. Which was not the, not the John Wayne no, no. movie, but, but a, a movie about a young black boy yes. who's taken away from his mother by social workers. His mother's a prostitute. He's taken away. And it stays with him, and he won't talk. There was Helen Von Dongen, who did the Flaherty, the Flaherty movies. There was Sidney Myers. This is going back that far. But the, but the dramatic film, starting in the late 50s into the 60s, it began to develop. And now when you get to the verdict, where, where we were all involved, and Reds and all of these bigger pit films, then we had a full-blown dramatic. You know, we had the right. people who had the talents for dramatic film, and we had the facilities for dramatic films. You know, Sound One developed sound well, stages, you know, we could do Foley's. It started out, Sound One started out as Image Sound. It was, where Tommy worked. It was, right. it was like, Tommy it was this, like I said, Byro, it was called Byro. It was Eddie Byer and this guy, Hugh Robinson, had a, two rooms up on the seventh floor. I remember that. That's where he cut uh, Midnight Cowboy. Then, Alicia Birnbaum bought this place, the two cut it, the two rooms. It was like, uh, the whole place was probably these two rooms there. 
And he set up a thing where he had sound effect library and there was a little room for Foley's and ADR. It was really small. And we used to go there for transfers. You know, like I was in a, I was working on a French connection when we had, they were doing, like we had a transfer of dailies, one of the takes. And Tom Fleischer actually brought it back. He was working there as a runner or something at the time. He brought it back. We were working on 20th Century Fox over 10th Avenue. It started like that and then he built it up on the seventh floor and then he got a cutting room, another cutting and then they built a, a mixing studio on the seventh floor with Mel Zelnicker, who then came from Reeves, where Dick Voracek was working. And then, you know, they extended the whole bunch of floors and sound became Sound One. There's a whole expansion. That then happened, you came over. That happened. I came over, they had one studio, one mixing studio. Right, right. And then from that, Tommy joined six months later. Yeah. And the two of us with Sound One and Alicia's experience, you know, with editing, they took more floors on the building, Sound One, 16, 19 Broadway, and all of a sudden we had an explosion. We had ended up like, with Trans Audio combining with our seven rooms. Right. Well, 1619 had five, and there was two up at 54th Street that came in yeah. 10 years later. Okay. But Sound that, One was yeah. one mixing studio. It was transfer rooms, yeah. editing rooms, one mixing studio, and then I came over in, in 80, 83, mm-hmm. and boom. Yep. Yeah, before and, that, and Tommy we'll came in uh, 84. That's Lee Dichter, a re-recording mixer with over 50 years working in film. His early credits include Alan Pakula's Sophie's Choice, Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters in Crimes and Misdemeanors, the Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing, and Ken Burns' The Civil War. Since then, he's worked with a range of directors, including Francis Ford Coppola, Mike Nichols, Brian De Palma, Robert Altman, John Singleton, and Errol Morris, to name but a few. Before that, we're cutting at 1600 Broadway which was across the street. Right street. That's where, you know, a lot of the p- pictures were being cut. And we'd go across the street to, to Alicia's play, you know, Sound One. At he the was, time... Alicia was making a living doing English-language dubs of Israeli features. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it was the only steady work he could get because there weren't that many yeah. feature films, you know, and right, right. that needed those right. services here. But that's what, kept, that's what kept that facility alive. And in fact, that's why we were able to develop that way because yeah. Alicia kept those facilities available. Yes. So when a director would say, well, what if I do it in New York? You know, a lot of directors lived in New York. They preferred not to be in California. Right. So they wanted to work in New York, but they said, well, we don't have a good mixing studio. Well, there was one. We don't have a Foley studio. Well, it's not a great one, but we can work with it. You know, and so then they said, okay, well, we'll try it. And then it worked. Yeah, and he was yeah. instrumental in doing that. And part of it is, uh, he had a sound library that he started with, but part of it is we, sound editors and produ- and people working in picture, we would give him production sound that we that we were able to take from the production to give him as for his library or we went out and recorded you know location we'd give it to him a copy of that so he built it up and so it was a mutual thing and a very cooperative thing very. there was there was a spirit of cooperation in New York that I found didn't really exist in California except in certain isolated areas you know well, I think that's one another reason why this explosion happened in that time period where you had the, the actors in New York in the New York stage which didn't have in California. Correct. Right. And you had the, the writers in New York. California does go, oh, let's get a New York writer. They come out, well, they were here. So this all happened here at that time, and the, the film industry followed that. Yeah. And the directors and then, wanted to live at home. They wanted to, right. well, you cut a movie at six months, you want to be home. The same thing, so the extension happened with finishing. They wanted to finish it here. California wanted to take it, finish it out there. 
and uh, eventually the studios got built. You know, Dick was the only place in town. Yeah. Actually, it was him and it was a fellow named Al Grimaldi, oh, yeah. who worked for Manhattan Sound. He, he passed away very young. And he did Pelham 1, 2, 3, I think he did a yeah, bunch of other things. That. He was a very good mixer. But there was nobody else. So that's that's when Tommy and I filled the void. We yes. were, at the, we were yes. 15, 20 yeah. years younger. Yes. 25 years younger than Dick. And so we were just, you know, showing our careers in feature films. I was a little later because there were commercials. And, and we had the facility there, we had the talent there to do this. So it and the technology was and technology. changing. Yeah. And you guys right. were, were, were more conversant That's with right. the newer right. stuff. Right. And yeah. we didn't and have the California unions with that out there to fight against. So new, uh, something would come along, a, a new system, new technology. The, the business was small, we can go get it right away. We didn't have to go through the layers of the California industrial yeah. Yeah. complex out there. And there was a difference in style. Right. Uh, in California, they often used three people on the mixing board. So someone would handle effects, someone would handle music, and then somebody else would do dialogue. Yeah. In New York, it was one guy doing it all. Right. You know, and that appealed, I think, to New York directors. Well, it, was, it, was a, it was a personal control. In a sense, you know, the sound effects and, and sound on a movie, is like a movie is like a musical score. You're scoring the movie with the dialogue prominent, but... All these other things go in, in reinforcement right. of it, to enhance it, to, to drive it, all kinds of things. So one vision of that was a different way of approaching right. it than yeah. the California sure. version. Sure. I mean, I, I could hear the balance of the sound effects, the music, and the dialogue, and I wouldn't have to, you know, com coordinate with the sound effects fellow, the lower retire screech or something. I could just do it with my pinky and just work it and then shape the sound. Yeah. The way, and, <coughs> and we get the constant feedback from everybody in the room. And it was a it was a you know combined effort of all of us to make something that worked with the picture. Yeah, they also had the directors themselves, maybe a handful of them or three or four, were friends. So they would come to their screening to, you know, make a comment about what do you think of my film? You know, like uh, well Sydney, and then there was Herb Gardner and Arthur Penn. and Arthur Penn and. Well, I remember seeing him in screening like Paddy Chayefsky was a, you know yeah. he's a writer but. He, he, he wrote Network with yeah, Sam yeah. so they, But he was they, very prominent yes, in that group. In terms in that of group they, they would all person. come yeah. and, uh, at the screening, you know, and uh, and Fosse, the, and, and well, you know, what do you think, what do you think, that kind of thing. In other words, uh, in addition to their own the, the environment, they had friends who were other directors who they confided in and worked together with. It was more collaborative New York effort yeah. to make good movies here. It was kind of the way it was. Like, you were taught by someone else which was, who was taught by someone else who was taught by someone else. And so you you got to learn the whole thing. Like, for instance, I was an apprentice on French Connection with Jerry Greenberg. Jerry Greenberg was assistant to Didi Allen. And, and, then, and, and so was Richie Marx. So then they went on to become editors of their own. In the beginning, there was this editor called Carl Lerner. Now, Carl Lerner was really the beginning in a way because he came from California and placed himself in New York and then Dee Dee came out of him and one thing led to another and another. And you had an apprenticeship, an assistant. You, you learned the craft from beginning to the end of the entire project. Like, let's say I'm using this as an example, but like on a French connection, I'm standing behind Jerry Greenberg, okay? And then somebody suddenly said, what do you think? What do I think? <laughs> You know, sure. what do I think? And, you know, he's standing there, you go, uh, you know, well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the beginning of and it. And that's the beginning. And you, you, you're forced <clears throat> into it like that. But you feel comfortable because they're watching. And they're not there to, to hurt you. You know, it's like to push you along, to get the most out of you. 
Then you get to the mix with Lee, and then you learn other things. You know, what you yes. can do, what you can't do. Yes. You know, we can get away with, but you can, well, you get away with him a lot more than you will with divorcing. <laughs> but, but, you know, but. In the, the editing. Yeah. In the editing, yeah. yeah. So you, there's a variety, you know, it's a constant learning experience, I think, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was interesting. So then I, I came with Sydney to mix the verdict, having always mixed features with Dick Borisak and had learned his style. Now, Dick Borisak was a truly brilliant mixer, but. He just mixed. If something was wrong with the tracks, we sound editors ran in the back and fixed it by editing. We stepped in, started to work with Lee, and it was the exact opposite. Sydney would say, you know, there's a little problem, blah, 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 we got to fix this. And he would say, okay, I got it, I got it, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. And he would work on the board. He'd do it on the board. (laughs) That was a revelation. The first thing I had to do was say, wait, 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 I can fix that much easier for you. Sometimes, sometimes he could do it easier from the board. But sometimes I could go in the back and do and re-edit. And also quicker, quicker too, because, you know, when you did it manually, it was a little different. He was able to do it so fast because of the commercial experience. So he, he did very quick, and it was like... A brave new world here, you know. Like Peter says, it was like, oh my God, you know. Before that, and 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 I loved Dick Vorsak. He was great. Yeah. He was great. But you know, it's, it was a different. It was a different kind of approach. Well, it was, he was great, but he was also very critical. And if he heard a sound in a track that he didn't like, yeah. he flicked the the <laughs> slider with his fingers so it was playing really loud and say, "What's that?" <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't need that. Or wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll fix it, and you'd run in the back so, and fix it. Yeah. So, so Lee could <laughs> Lee, Lee did it on the board. He just boom, boom, boom. It was gone. Yeah. Well, yeah. two reasons. One reason is first of all, I was a, a when I was young, I learned how to play piano. So my hands, I have to, sorry, very fast hands with that. But secondly, as as Peter and and Maurice mentioned, I had started on commercials. Well, with commercials, they would book like a half an hour with a half bumper. You had to do a mi- a commercial mix, a thirty second commercial in a half an hour. And I really learned how to go fast. I was also learning from, from the, the crews that had been working on prior films, because I was new to the feature film area. Maybe you know, I was doing some films three, four years before The Verdict. Four Friends was one of them, with uh, Barry Malkin. Yeah, Barry. Right, right, Malkin, and uh, Arthur Penn directed. So I was learning what they had learned on the feature side. So I coordinated that into what I had learned from my mm-hmm. background on commercials. Right. So it, I was really bringing something new to the table, and they were bringing something new to my table. So I was learning that part of it, the feature film part, of it, looking at something which I had always dreamed of, but doing something longer than 60 seconds. <laughs> in New York, you couldn't specialize the way you could in the West Coast. On the West Coast, you could do just comedies. Situation, you know, you could do or, or just feature films or just a certain kind of feature film or whatever. Here. If you didn't go every which way the jobs were, you wouldn't work. You could do a documentary, then you could do commercials, then you could do a feature, you right. could do a, an industrial, you know, and, and I did all of those things. Right. And Sydney, Sydney liked that in people who worked with him. He wanted them to be broad that way, you know, and he used that as part of his, what he called, actually called a New York point of view. Right. Uh-huh. Well, we all we all did that. You did documentaries yeah, all the yeah, way through, yeah, and yeah. I, I did documentaries yeah. all the way through. If I was yeah. if I had some openings in the feature film, I'd be doing a documentary. <clears throat> I, I I started with I did Ken Burns' first film called Brooklyn Bridge way back in the eighties, and I stayed with him all, all along until you know I started getting too involved with the features. But I did a whole slew of his stuff, including Civil War and and Jazz 
And each different type of, of film that we worked on presented different problems. Documentaries, you know, you only get one chance to, to record it. it. You can't go back and take two on a doc. So there were many different kind of sound problems that we'd have to live with and figure out and create different ways to fix it. There was no book. You know, we were writing the book as we went along. Right. Yeah, it's a, and, and Sidney loved that. And Sidney used all those techniques. I mean, Serpico, Prince of the City, he used documentary techniques. The right. camera moves right. in that way. It's, right. It bounces sometimes, you know, and that's that's quite deliberate. He wasn't scared to pick up the camera and hold it, have it be handheld. Right. I mean, the thing where Newman breaks up his office, yeah. that was one 10-minute take, you know, and the camera was handheld. And also what the feeling was when you, hand, when you handheld the camera. You were there. You were part of the of, of the action because mm -hmm. the camera's moving. You're just feeling it. So, so he instinctively knew that. He learned that from doing mm -hmm. it. I think that he brought the post-war documentary cinema verite idea to bigger feature films, to to dramatic film. You know, and I think he he also brought the whole left wing stage movement, I think, with Actor Studio, and it was a specific amalgam of those things, you know. He, but he was quintessentially New York, very much so. Yeah, right. And I think even the other directors were influenced by him. I think uh, Mamet... Mamet, for sure, you know. strongly for Mamet. Yeah. Practically studied with him, you know, yeah. in that sense. But I think also Jonathan, Demi... Yeah. And I, I bet uh, you'd find it in Woody Allen if you, oh, you know, sure. in the way they're shot, at least, you know, even though that's a very idiosyncratic style verbally, yeah, yeah. Right. you know. And Marty, certainly in the New York movies of Marty's, I mean, mm -hmm. some yeah, of the, yeah, movies, the early ones. Yeah, the early ones, you right. know. Oh, yeah, um, Taxi Driver. Yeah. Yeah, Taxi Driver for sure. Yeah, or or yeah. Uh, the one about the uh, Jake LaMotta. Right. Raging Bull. Raging Bull. I mean, right. uh, Goodfellas. You know, which are quintessentially, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. even the French Connection, yeah, you know, shooting on the street, shooting on location in New York City instead of a soundstage. And getting out of the you know, they, they yeah. didn't, they didn't do that. They just didn't do that. It was too noisy. It was too difficult. It, you know, you had to close down things and sort. You know, Sydney shot everywhere. He shot everywhere. He got permission to shoot everywhere. He dealt with the city very, very openly. And I think that, that paved the way for a lot of people to shoot in the city and use the energy of the city as part of the movie. Prince of the City, totally shot on location. I, I don't know how many setups there were in that. There was a god-awful huge number of setups all over the city. Everything was shot in the city. Well, Dog Day. Dog, yeah, day. dog day. Shot all over. Yeah. And, and also yeah. the same in thing. Queens. He also loved to use the sounds of the city. That's right. about The yeah. bus, the yeah. subway, yeah. the, yeah. the streetcar. You know, the, you know, the garbage truck, and not using music to have their feeling. He wanted the sounds of the city. You take those films of California, half of the movie would be music. Yeah. It was just slapping on. I mean, that was... And he hated a phony acting style. He loved that, that what used to be called the kitchen sink yeah. kind of acting, the yeah. Brando, the, you know, the, all, all of those. <laughs> Yulia Kazan, you know, yeah. style, style acting. That was his idea of... of of good acting. Which you know. came out of the theater. Really, that's right. You know, right. And that's right. where... Yeah, the dead-end kids, you know. Right, right. He was, he was asked to go with them, you know, and he stayed in New York. And they became big, big movie stars. 
Hans Hall and Leo Gorsi yeah. and all of them, you know. He would have been one of them if he'd gone. He would have, yeah. He was a child actor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, well, they all were, but, no, but, but, I, bet, but I mean, at yeah. that point, when they had made that hit, uh-huh. you know, what's called the Dead End Kids, I think yeah. it was on Broadway. Right. And then they got a chance to go west to make a movie of it, and he didn't go. Right. He decided he'd stay. You know, and then and they went through the whole thing with Odette's and feeling betrayed, you know, and, right. and then, uh, you know, and... But he didn't like to talk about... He didn't, I don't think he wanted to make reference to his films being political. They were, you know, they were social. Or right. They had a social comment. Not, uh, political was not something he didn't want to... Nope. He, he, didn't didn't, wanna, he, didn't he was afraid of it. it. Huh? He was afraid of it. He was afraid, yeah. yeah. He told me, <coughs> he, told me he, he was... They, he got word that Winchell was going to name him as a communist. Really? And he got really scared because that was curtains for a career. And he pulled some strings, and he got a meeting. And he said he went and saw Winchell. And Winchell greeted him, and some guy came in the room and looked at Sidney and said, that's not him, and left the room. Hmm. And Winchell said, it's really nice to meet you, and he left. But he said, that was the single scariest moment in his entire life. And he was left wing, and you know he yeah. had been a friend of yeah. my dad's, and so forth. And I think after that he decided that's it. I'm not having anything to do with this. My social view is my social right, view. But political it. is not right. up, right. which matched the times. I mean, you couldn't. You know, that's why my parents left the business because of, of politics. You know, but just the idea that if you worked in film and you were in the, of the left wing, if you were in the Communist Party, you'd be blacklisted and couldn't couldn't work. You know, my yeah. parents did candy camera the first year of Candy Camera. And then they realized it's television and the networks are going to can everybody who has anything to do and they were both members of the party so that was that. They, then they were out of the business. You know. I think that he I think that he felt a new, as being a New Yorker and he felt it in his being you know, all the time. It wasn't uh, I mean the filmmaker becomes an extension of him you know, but he was very much a New Yorker. You know, and right. I mean, I would say. And he didn't in- insulate himself. I mean, he, you know, he he was married to a black woman. He lived on the edge of Harlem, you know, right. in a fancy brownstone. But he lived on the edge of Harlem. It was not a fancy neighborhood, you know. And he never moved from there. No. You know, I mean, he he, he was he was part of it. I asked Maurice, Lee, and Peter to talk about how the verdict came together, how they met, and what the conversation was like going into the film. Maurice and I met first on Missouri Breaks. Yeah, on the sound crew of Missouri Breaks. I was a, I was an assistant sound editor at that yeah. point, and so we were both. Missouri, yeah, yeah, we both were. Yeah, yeah. I was in music school, and trying to make enough money yeah. to get through music yeah. school. Playing the cello. <laughs> right. Are you a cellist. Well, in fact, I became a picture editor through sound editing. I worked worked with Lumet as a sound editor. In fact, was trained by one of his editors. Bob Fitz Stevens as a sound editor <clears throat> and became a supervising sound editor on Prince of the City. I was supposed to go on to Reds as a sound editor and Lumet asked Dee Dee Allen, the, the editor of Reds, along with a, a few people, to, to let me be his picture editor. And she said, not until he's finished Reds. <laughs> so I did Reds as a sound editor and then went on to the verdict. And, it, and at that point, Lee Dichter's name came up because... Dick Voracek was not right. wasn't available. Not available. Right. Not available. In fact, a year earlier, he wasn't available for Death Trap. That's how I met Sidney. Right. When it came time to mix Death Trap, 
Dick Voracek, who was the top mixer in the city, and he had done all many, many, like most of Sydney's New York pictures. And Voracek was on, Dick was on a project, maybe maybe three or four together, and they couldn't get in. So there was, the word to the grapevine was that there was, there was this young mixer across town who was working in a commercial mixing studio, which is where I learned. I did not learn in the feature studio. So here I was doing commercials, you know, working in this studio that my father owned, and I was doing some documentaries, and I would do it. I was starting to branch into features, some small features, and there was the word out that, that Lee was pretty good. So Sydney's team had meetings and said, let's try Lee. <coughs> on Death Trap, and Sydney said, let's, use, let's work with Lee on the well, second on one, the, on the right. verdict, which was right after, maybe six months later. <coughs> right, right. I met Sydney earlier, like on Serpico. I was an assistant. It's Eddie Byer. He was one of the sound editors. It was Eddie Byer, Richard, uh, Bob Raitano, I think Richard Cirincioni, and I think that was it. You know, I mean, I started as a picture assistant, so I went back and forth, picture assistant, sound assistant, and like Peter said, after sound assistant, Sidney actually did that a lot with sound editors. He made them his picture editor a number of times. I mean, actually, I never really told this story, but... He asked me to do that too, but I got sick and I couldn't do it, but that was on Q&A. He said, would you like to be the picture editor? And I, of course, I was scared because I never, I, I had been sound all these years, but but he did that all the time, you know, with Jack Fitz Stevens, with you, with Andy, 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 Andy and, Munching, yeah. yeah. I asked Peter to talk about what the conversations were like in the edit room. Well, he had a pretty clear idea for the verdict. He had a pretty clear idea of how it was going to go. Sidney worked like a jigsaw puzzle player. He figured out what shots, what angles he wanted to be in in the finished cut before he shot it. And he had this worked out absolutely clearly in his head. So when he went to shoot the verdict, they took off the back wall and they shot every shot that had to be from the back of the wall for every scene. Hmm. Then they put the back wall on, took the right wall off, shot that way, left wall, and over the judge. So this incredible jigsaw puzzle, you know. And at one point, we were watching the dailies. It wasn't for the courtroom scene, but it was for one of the one of the lawyers' scenes. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at the dailies, and I'm sitting there taking notes, and we're watching the dailies. And all of a sudden, Sidney looks at me and says, I fucked up. I said, what? He said, you can't go from there to there. You've got to go from here to there. And I didn't get that angle. We've got to pick it up tomorrow. And he turned to his uh, assistant, Bert, and said, Bert, we gotta, we got to shoot that scene again. Don't let him start strike the set. In his head, he realized you couldn't, it would it break the angle. Break it would, would have yeah. screwed things up. You would have gotten discombobulated. Yeah. We had to be over here to go there for that line, and he knew. He's cutting in his head. He was yeah. cutting yeah. in his head. And when we worked with him on films like The Verdict, we essentially assembled the cut that was in his head, Right. With, with our own skills, I mean, any editor was working with, with our own skills. Only when it didn't work did we go into conventional editing, where you try to solve the problem, you look at it, you see if it's solved, it's not solved, you take it apart, you try a different way to solve the problem. We did that on Daniel. On Daniel, it didn't work. We looked at the movie and it was terrible. Nobody would stand to watch it. So then we had to rip the whole thing apart and rejigger it. And now I think it starts with scene 69, and it's, you know, then it goes to scene 12, then it goes to scene 38. You know, it's completely different from the script. You know, and that was worked over, it took six months. The verdict took two and a half weeks to cut. Wow. 
Yeah. Are you kidding me? No. Two and a half weeks? Right. We we just sat there and Sydney told us which shots and we handed them the shots and we marked them out and we spliced them together and there was the verdict. It took longer to mix it than yeah. to cut it. Yeah. yeah. And, we, and, we, and we screened it and he said, there's one little thing I want to do. And we went back and we made this one little change. He said, okay, that's it. Go home. Take a rest. We'll, we'll put it out to sound. I let it let it sit for a minute, but we'll, we'll probably go right out to sound. And that was that. Well, same thing with sound. When we're in the mix, you know, if he heard something he didn't like, I mean, he, all of a sudden he would just, just listen, look, take that out. He wouldn't like, gee, what do you think about that one? He says, no, no, take that out. Just like that. Yeah, he, it was just he wouldn't even say why this and that. He said, he said, it plays better without it. Just take it out. And, of course, Sidney was, was excellent at that because he didn't vacillate over it. Sidney was quick. All he wanted was you the know, job done. He wanted the wanted. job done yeah. and, and well done, but yeah. he wasn't into the meticulousness of everything, you know? He was, he was, he was deaf on indulgent altogether. Things had to be pretty... Pretty straight. And with Mamet's dialogue, right. that was already written mm. to be that way. Right. right. And that was one of the reasons I think he loved Mamet's writing, you know, because it's very stripped down and unromantic and unpurple prose, you know. But def- definitely his style was to keep it absolutely severe. Now, those decisions happened all the time. I mean, I, uh, he was constantly saying, yes, no, you know, no, no. You're improving it into the shithouses. Is the example I ran into. You're improving it into the shithouse. In other words, you've you've added too much detail. We need it stripped down. We need it hard and lean within the story. Now, I didn't make story decisions very often, so I didn't run into that as much as writers would. I mean, I I remember on a lot of things. The the length of the shots, he he, he sometimes marked with a grease pencil on the moviola. We would run it. He'd mark it in and out. Sometimes he would leave it to me, to, to time. You know, he would say, give me four close-ups, you know, equal length. So he would go boom, 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 right? And I would do that, and we would look at it, and, and you know, if it was right, it was right. If it wasn't, we would adjust, you know. But it was a place to start from, you know. And, but and he would feel it, mark it. Sometimes, yes. He did that less on other films, but, but on The Verdict, he did it a lot, you mm-hmm. know. Sydney had a real sense of that tactile speed of the film through the gate that he could market. And then he, you know, the only thing I think that sold him on working digitally later was that it was so fast. And mm. Sydney was always about fast. So <laughs> he just liked that it was fast, you know. The other thing about Sydney, about with working with people, is Sydney didn't want you to be a person. He wanted you to be an extension of his hands, right? an intelligent extension of his right. hands. And if he if he felt too close to you, that made it uncomfortable for him. Personally, too close. In fact, mm-hmm. I think that's what happened with me. He, he you know, we had similar backgrounds, similar political backgrounds. My parents were left-wing, as his were, and came out of New York, same as he, my, my mother was in the film business. In fact, my mother taught Jack Fitzstevens who was the sound editor that taught me sound editing on Sidney Lumet's films. Jack Fitzstevens is the man who did the sound editing on the, on the pawnbroker. Right. When, the, when he's having the flashback to the prison camps and you hear the screaming and stuff, Jack Fitzstevens brought that sound to Sidney and said, Sidney, don't play it silent the way you are. Put this in, too. You need it. 
And Sydney said, you're right, and, and did it. I mean, Jack was a very... And that was a, a, a hallmark in psychological flashback, yeah. too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And Jack was a real creative partner in that. And then later, Sydney made him, on Death Trap, he was a picture editor. Picture. And I, yeah. just, just tell me what you want, I think. I, I he was remember. a picture editor also. That's when I learned yeah. to be sound editor. Yeah, so... Yeah, Jack, it was Jack. a long, long line, but he didn't want to be close, you know. And because we had such a close background, eventually he hired my assistant Andy to be his next editor, right. and and actually introduced me to John Cassavetes <laughs> as a way of finding me more work, because <laughs> he was uncomfortable with that kind of closeness. He just wasn't that kind of a guy, you know. Whereas with Lee, you know, he met him only when he went to do the mix. So that was okay, you know. Right, it was, it was okay. Know. It was only there for like three weeks. Right. And I don't think really, he really didn't say, gee, Lee, try that and see something, you know. He didn't know. He said, this this is what I want. Do it that way. Sidney had in his head how the picture was going to look and how it was going to sound. He didn't come unprepared to the mix. He knew what he wanted. And, and you had run the sound before, you know, in the editing process, what we were going to, what Maurice was going to try to put in there, and, and some of the sounds they're going to put behind the scenes. So, when he got to the mix, he was pretty familiar with what was going to go in. Yeah. So he just had to decide on, on how much and how loud, and maybe take some things out that he wasn't sure of. But it, he was pretty sure how that movie was going to sound in his own head. So it was pretty clean. And well, Sidney believed in dialogue, and he always made sure you heard the dialogue, but. He was a filmmaker who would tell you the story with pictures, too. And there, the, the verdict is a prime example. There's a moment when you see a long shot, and you see Paul walking down the thing, and you see Warden come running up behind him and say something to him. Well, he's going to oh, tell him that she betrayed yeah, yeah. him. But you don't hear it. You don't hear it. And oh, suddenly you see him go in running. In fact, there's a, a panic. Big, there's a huge... The whole no, thing is told. No, no so all that dialogue is is missing. Yeah. And, and sound effects, the street, just sound, engines, sirens, yeah. sirens, no music, just, so. just just loud, loud, loud. Yeah. It was, I think it's the loudest sound effect section in the movie. Yeah. Also, with the visualization uh, uh, of not having dialogue, very little dialogue, is when Paul character is at the hospital taking pictures of mm. taking pictures of the it's patient fine. who has you know, yeah. she's and he's taking Polaroids. And the Polaroids, you know, they come out black, and you put them on the thing, and you have to wait 30, 60 seconds for the image to come up. And he's looking, you know, ambulance chase, he's looking for a payday, a couple hundred thousand, whatever, of the, of the final thing. And there's no music. It's about a two-minute scene. He's taking the pictures, and you see he starts to slow down when he's taking the pictures. He's starting to think what he's actually doing. He's taking pictures of this person who's comatose in the bed. And in the background, Maurice is, all he's got going is the... Is the uh, the breathing machine. That's it. There's no music. There's no music. You don't hear any of the voices in the hospital as you hear that. And then you slowly see these images come to life on the bed. And that's the moment that Paul makes the switch and realizes he's not going to take the money. He's going to fight. He's going to fight the scene. And it's brilliant. It's done with no dialogue. Long takes. And it runs like two minutes, that sequence. There may be one cut, maybe. I remember one when he comes home at night, very late and or early in the morning, and it's all quiet. And I remember putting like a garbage truck outside, and it was so it was so haunting, you know. Like it was quiet, quiet, and he was alone, you know. It it added to the loneliness, you know. It also gave it the time of day. He had a time of day. A lot of other films would have had music there. Yeah. 
Really? I mean, I noticed, I noticed from the verdict there must have been six <coughs> places, seven places where yeah. most directors would, there would be a two-minute queue going over this, over the cuts, if that, not sitting. He had maybe three cues in the movie. Yeah. He, he went for realism. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to force the emotions. He said, it's up on the screen. You don't have to put that layer of music in there. It's just, it ruins it. I think I, I agree with that philosophy to begin with. Because it's harder. It's, it is harder, mm. but, but it's more, it's not in your face trying to make a big point of whatever you're going to do. So I, I, I always liked it very much. And he knew exactly, you know, he always had the focus on the right thing in the drama of the film in my opinion, you know? That's interesting you say it that way because there was a side of Sidney who did, wasn't quite sure he was as good as that, you know? And he was fighting that fight to prove he was good at this in, in as much as, you know, that, that was a side of him. I, not, not one you saw easily, but, but he was never comfortable in his brilliance, you know, the yeah. way some people are. He, yeah, he, he fought for it. That's true. He dismissed he, a lot of that. It's true. He fought for it, and, and, and he was constantly trying to prove it, you know, and he took the failures of the films, the commercial failures, very hard, you know, even though he, part, partly because it scared him that he wouldn't work, and he desperately needed to work. He, he said once, he, he said something about he had another film coming up, I said, oh, my God, Sidney, two at once? That sounds like hell to me. And he said, that's my idea of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, I remember he, he said, you've got to make the deal for the next picture before the one you're working on opens. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, no, the fear. He was, he was, right. That's yeah. the fear. I think yeah. you got to do it because, you know, yeah. you never know if there were, you know, bad reviews. You're going to you have trouble getting the next movie. He says, you've got to just keep it going. A lot of directors from the 60s and 70s started, you know, doing their films, and they didn't make money. So if you get two or three in a row that don't make money, you you start to get in trouble. So we we lived the heyday was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think. You know, maybe even the early 90s too. Yeah, they they couldn't get the money. I mean, uh, even uh, Brian De Palma, who was doing yeah. quite well, but then he couldn't get money to make yeah. a film either. He had to go to Europe. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, he used to say. I do one film for myself, and the next two films I do for mm. my reputation and for my budgets, meaning the, the bigger con commercial successes could fuel the energy that would allow him to do films that the studios didn't prefer to do. Yeah, he wouldn't go to California unless he was desperate for the job. And up to the time I knew him, I don't think he had ever shot in, in California. Up to the verdict or Daniel, he'd never shot in Hollywood. It was quintessentially New York. This episode was produced by myself, Isabel Siderni, and Ben Baker. The sound engineers for today's session were Kristen Catonia of Soundtrack and Nick Schenk of C5. Stay tuned for episode 5, featuring a conversation with Post Factory founder Alex Halpern and picture editor Angela Correo, as well as episode 6, a conversation between Sound One founder Alicia Birnbaum and people such as Mel Zelniger, Tom Fleischman, Lee Dichter, and Jay Rubin talking about the era of Sound One and the indelible mark it made in shaping the New York film industry. In New York, this is Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame.